What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today is part two of our episode with Devin Thorpe. Um, this is part of our Funding Lab mini-series with my co-host, Josh Soloway, securities lawyer from Manhattan. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper, but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Devin, we were talking a lot on last episode about a couple of things, about equity crowdfunding, raising money as entrepreneurs, about making the world better. Um, can we start off with uh, this idea of, of adding purpose to add profit and, and causes out there that you think are making the world better? We, um, you know, Josh and I work with a charity called Child Rescue, trying to prevent child sex trafficking. Um, if you had advice for us there to try and get the word out more, get more people involved in that cause, what would you tell us? I think the you're doing such incredibly important work. Uh, it, it's hard to overstate it. Uh, you know, the, the, the problem with uh, child trafficking is complex. And there are some fundamental things that need to happen around the world to help people understand uh, part of what's going on. I, I think uh, we in the media often characterize uh, prostitutes as criminals. Uh, we have traditionally seen them as criminals. And in some cases, uh, it's fair to characterize women that way. But it's far more likely uh, when you look at that uh, profession, if you can call it that, that the women who are participating in that are doing so from a position of either coercion or desperation. And it's tragic 
to think about um, women once you realize that they are doing that because they have to and not because they want to. It's it's crazy to be thinking of them as criminals. On the other hand, uh, we need to be thinking about the, the pimps and the johns uh, around the world as uh, the most uh, egregious kind of criminal that exploit women in the most brutal way. Um, if we thought of every john as a rapist, uh, it would completely alter our perspective on uh, the the crime uh, and it would take the burden off of the the women who are being victimized so oftentimes in this area. So there are all kinds of issues. Uh, we need people that are working on uh, helping women feel like they have alternatives. We need uh, people that uh, are educating women around the world, right? We need uh, to eliminate poverty. If you are a poor um, family in Cambodia and uh, a, a woman comes up to you and says that uh, I will um, give you $50 for your daughter and I will take her and educate her in, uh, in Thailand and uh, I will send her home to you in five years and she will be well educated and uh, she'll be ready for a career. Well, uh, that 12-year-old girl doesn't stand a chance. But why? It's because mom and dad need 50 bucks so bad that they'll trust a stranger to take their daughter away. Um, and it's just tragic. And, of course, so, so a simple lie and $50 will get you uh, a girl that can be trafficked. Uh, all kinds of things need to happen. But one of the things that's so important that needs to happen is for people to get caught doing it. Uh, because that makes it so much more expensive for the perpetrators of those crimes to be caught and prosecuted. Uh, it makes it more expensive even for those who are not caught uh, because of the fear of uh, being caught and the preparations they need to take to avoid being caught. And it encourages them to do something else for a living, whether that is something legitimate or not. So, you are doing great work, and I just want to commend you uh, for doing it. Um, but as I think all nonprofits face a challenge uh, with raising money and awareness, and oftentimes we get the feeling that because no one's paying attention or not enough people are paying attention to our thing, that the general population is heartless and cruel. And I think that's far, far, far from the truth. And one of the mistakes that we often make in advocating for our causes, and that is to assume that people are bad. Because in fact, what's really going on is that most people have a favorite cause or set of favorite causes that they devote their time, attention, and money to. And so it's just like uh, the car business. Uh, just because uh, if you're selling Volvos and uh, it seems like no one wants to buy Volvos, it's not because people don't buy cars. It's not because they have a thing against cars or a thing against driving. It's because they already bought a BMW or a Volkswagen or a Chevy and they don't need a Volvo. And we're in the same boat uh, as we advocate for causes. And so uh, there are a few, I think, best practices 
that come into play. And I think um, one is to personify the story. And it's interesting how important this is. Uh, but you can't tell the story of victims. You have to tell the story of a victim. Uh, one child, one compelling story is far more powerful than a, a bunch of stories or quick anecdotes. So, so that's one thing. The other side of the coin is it's also important to gather data on impact. And we want to look not just at what we're doing in terms of our activities and the people we touch immediately, but we, we have to get more and more sophisticated about measuring downstream impacts. So as you look at what your organization is doing, uh, the traditional metrics that have always been used is to gather activity data. How many uh, of these things did we do? And then, but the challenge is to start thinking about what happens downstream. So for instance, uh, you rescue a girl, that's wonderful, that's great. You, you pull her out of the situation she's in. We also need to be paying attention long longitudinally to what uh, happens to that girl. Uh, and if she's able to return successfully to her family, if she's able to return to high school, if she's able to uh, uh, have a normal, healthy life after being rescued, and then to identify when there are failures. And, and in that space, I understand there are a lot of failures. Uh, a lot of girls end up because of uh, drug addictions or because they're ostracized by their family and community, the return to uh, the life that they were living, that they were rescued from, uh, not because they love it so much, but because they're uh, somehow dependent on it. And so uh, being able to track what's happening and long-term impacts is going to be key in the long run to the success, I think, of, of your organization. So. I hope that's helpful, Jeff. Well, it's hugely helpful. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump on that because as a, as a, you know, I've, I've been involved in the organization and watched the work that Jess has done and his commitment to it. And well, and your wife, uh, we certainly can't forget um, her, her commitment to it. And, and so, and your brother and everybody else, Jess, I mean, it's just amazing. Um, you know, you touched on something, Devin, earlier on there, and then I want to turn it back to Jess here because he's, he's so much more conversant than I, than I am. Um, you know, two key things. One for me was uh, when I first started talking to Jess about, the, about child rescue and he was saying, telling me the stats, and even just something you keyed in on was the way that child prostitutes are even described as an underage prostitute. Or, you know, just really, as opposed to sex trafficking victim, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the power of that language, which I just didn't even see before, uh, you know. And and after that, I remember where I was having dinner with you, Jess. I remember where we were. Um, after that day, I never saw, you know, it just popped up all over the place. I started seeing it everywhere where I never, you know, before you don't even notice it. It's amazing the power of language like that, right? Um 
you know, for, for me and for all of us, and to your point about a single story or a single experience, you know, huge stats, huge problems uh, can become daunting and hard to know where to start. You know, for me, holding my, you know, after years of talking to Jess, I'm saying, you should get involved with this. You say, I should, I should, I should. We're all so busy. We get back to our daily fires and crises or life. And when my daughter was born, I'm holding my daughter. She's safe. It just hit me. I called Jess and said, all right, I'm in. What, what are we doing? Um, and have had just a total pleasure of watching uh, in the sense of, of, of watching what you're doing, uh, Jess, with Child Rescue and, and the team. So, Jess, anything you want to touch on there? Uh, you know, I'll throw it back to you because you obviously there are, I'm sure there are light bulbs going off all over the place as Devin's talking. Yeah, first that you guys are giving me way too much credit. I'm just like the I'm not playing any of the instruments. I'm just the orchestra guy here trying to recruit people to help out. But I will say we have had such great partners and uh Devin, you hit on so many of my soapbox issues. You know, I think about the aftercare facility that we're building the second building for in Cusco, Peru right now. The our listeners have have helped fundraise for it earlier this year and we, we were able to get all the money we needed a little over two weeks ago. So we're building this facility. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's going to house 25 girls that uh, the Peruvian government rescued from an illegal mining organization that had owned them and was just using them for their mine workers out by the Amazon. And now they get ah. a real chance at healing and they get a, it's not like a two week environment. It's like a long term family type feeling place where they'll get career skills and stuff, right? And I think about that facility and the idea of calling them prostitutes is, um, it's such a mislabel, right? We've got, we've got kids in that facility with our Canadian partner and our Peruvian partner. I mean, second graders who are in that facility, right? Street kids who have been harmed in this way. Um, to, to characterize it with a word that implies choice is, is such a mislabeling, you know? I think about here in Utah, um, I'm on the Attorney General's Human Trafficking Task Force called UTIP, and um, I think about... Um, how much has changed legally as the issue has originally been framed as we got to prevent teenagers from choosing to participate in this crime to we need to prevent adults from coercing and tricking teenagers into being allowed to be rented out to other adults to be harmed for money. The laws are yeah. changing. The police trainings are changing. I mean, they've, the law enforcement here in the state has done some incredible things. And, you know, one of the girls in our youth group, the Backyard Broadcast Prevention Campaign at high schools, she she was being rented out by a family member in the fifth grade. And to, th to think that that is an element of choice, that she was a criminal as a fifth grader, is just, you know, once you meet her and you see, like, she's gotten past that hurt to the point where now she is a mentor for foster care kids who have been harmed and really gone on to be, uh, like, someone who is making the world better from moving, you know, past victim to becoming a survivor and a help to others. It's really inspiring for me. I mean, I know we've got a lot of work left to do, but even the fact that you could speak so eloquently about this when, you know, um, you come from the, uh, <laughs> from my people as a finance background, right? I mean, yeah. I think about my years at Citigroup and uh, on the M&A side and, you know, the media would characterize us finance guys as pretty self-serving. And so yes. having folks like yourself being able to speak so fully about it uh, is a really great sign to me. So... Um, any, uh, well, I feel like we, we've covered a bunch on that, but, um, thinking about, um, this book of yours, uh, adding profit, sorry, adding 
Tell me the name. Adding Purpose to Profit. What's the name? Adding Profit by Adding Purpose. Adding Profit by Adding Purpose. We always like to ask ask authors their process of writing. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what the book's about and also about, you know, are you a get up at 5 a.m. and write every morning kind of guy or what your schedule looks like? It's, um, yeah. So the the book is about um, how business, uh, and, and it's without prejudices to size, but how business can add a purpose element uh, to become more profitable. Uh, the, the There's just all kinds of great data now that suggest that our society has moved to a place quite broadly. Although, you know, it's, of course, not universal, but quite broadly, customers, consumers, clients expect your company to do something good for the world. It is no longer enough to not harm it. And with that in mind, we all need to be doing more. And there are some specific strategies for uh, adding purpose in the book in ways that can be incrementally profitable. But uh, in general, doing that sort of thing well and doing it right can add profit to the to the business. And I, I've you know, come to that conclusion after writing about this for Forbes for three years, and uh, both in terms of corporate social responsibility and in talking to social entrepreneurs and impact investors. It's clear that from every angle that this is increasingly true. Um, I think the investment market is a laggard in this in many respects. Consumers have have really shifted to this uh, pretty effectively over the last generation, and investors are now just coming to a place where they are now more consistently screening their portfolios to get rid of problems and looking for companies that are actually doing good, not just um, making a profit. So it's an exciting time uh, and an exciting place to be playing. Um, As to my process for writing, you know, everybody has a different process, and my process has evolved over time. But some of the things that I have found successful are to integrate my blogging with my book writing. Uh, far and away, my most successful book was just a collection of blog posts. And the book's been read a million times, uh, far more than the blog posts were ever read. Uh, the book has been read, and I find that fascinating. Um you know, I, I was fortunate to uh, write about a topic in that case that was appealing, and I, I think I did a good job. The, the book is called 925 Ideas to Help You Save Money, Get Out of Debt, and Retire a Millionaire So You Can Leave Your Mark on the World, which is the longest title in the history of a book. <laughs> uh, but it, it is also uh, an SEO-optimized title. I mean, I literally sat down with SEO tools and figured out what the title should be, and it worked brilliantly. Um, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that, but that's the truth. And so the book has been read a lot. Uh, and I have now hundreds of five-star reviews on Amazon for that book. And um, it's crazy uh, to me, in a way, that the book has been so uh, so popular. But it, it literally was a collection of blog posts. I was paid uh, to write for, um, I say blog posts, little articles for um, for a website called Family Share. 
uh, about family finance. And so I put him into this book and shazam. Um, interesting outcome there. Um, other things that I've done, you know, I wrote my first book uh, recently. Uh, my first of the last five books was um, written while I was in China. That one was a little bit easier because while I was in China, it was I was a little disconnected from a lot of things. Uh, it was harder to get outside and do stuff. And so th- there was a lot of quiet time in our apartment, and I used that to write the book. But since then, I've had to find other tricks for uh, finding time to write, and some of that involves just putting time on the calendar uh, in increments to just block out Mondays for writing, for instance. I've done that on some of my books. The other thing is to block out large chunks of time. So, for instance, I'm working on my new book. I've been calling it 30 Years to Peace. I've really been working on this book for three years, and I'm committed that it will be the next book I deliver, uh, it, whatever it is. I wanted it to be perfect, and I'm afraid that I've I've wanted it to be perfect uh, too much, and I'm just going to have to write it, perfect or not. But, um, for instance, uh, at the end of October, I've blocked out a week. Uh, I'm going to go stay in a hotel for a week. I won't get the whole book written, of course, in a week, but it will allow me not only to uh, finish an outline, but to finish uh, a number of chapters and really get some momentum going. And then from there, I'll block out incremental time each week to to make progress and move that forward. And I'll also use uh, my strategy of writing articles about topics that I can copyright into the book. Um, so it'll it'll be a combination of of all the tricks I've used in the past, probably, to come up with this next book. Well, that's an interesting uh, sort of strategy and a good one, actually, because if you have to chunk off time, I would think, to create articles that, or blog posts or what have you, content that you require to uh, produce in short form, uh, you can still be doing the work, the thinking, the, um, the immersion in a certain focused area, right, uh, that can, if you approach that if that's the right way, I would think you could keep continuity uh, that would serve the, the book writing process well. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, as I listen to you talk about, um, and, uh, you know, about this, um, you know, the key thing, of course, is getting the word out. So, um, you know, one thing that we, we would certainly like, always like to talk about is tools, um, you know, what are the tools in terms of search engine optimization, title choice? You know, Tim Ferriss talks about, well, the four-hour work week was chosen because it worked when I did the testing on uh, you know, what would get traction, what would get awareness out there. Uh, you know, uh, but, but how do you approach that process? What well, are the tools that you find particularly relevant? I, I've only done one um book title that I think was really successful. Uh, and so let's talk about that one. It's the one I mentioned, the 925 book. Um, so the, the lesson that I learned there is the, is the power of, of SEO. And, and Google has some great tools uh, associated with its AdWords uh, program. There is a tool where you can go in and look for and see literally how many times different words are searched. Um, in any, in almost any search 
bar now, when you start typing something, it'll also suggest finishing phrases, right? So if you start to, if you type in, uh, uh, you know, Hillary, uh, obviously one of the suggestions is going to be Clinton and then, and then further on, it'll if you type in Clinton, it'll add more words, uh, and so like pneumonia might come up this week. Or um, uh, anyway, you, you get the idea. So those give you ideas. But the the great thing with the Google tool is you can actually see how many searches there are. So you you can um, determine that you know how many hundreds or thousands or millions of times each month a different phrase is searched. And it's just good to have words and phrases that get searched a lot. Uh, So when I wrote my book, you know, three of the key phrases were retirement. So that got into my book title and getting out of debt was another one that was a huge search topic. So that got in the book. Saving money was another big one. So that got in there. Um, now it was it was a ridiculous example of SEO tactic run amok, but it has worked fabulously well. Like I say, that book's been downloaded over a million times, and you know it's not because I'm a great writer. I'm I wish it were true, but no, it's because I <laughs> SEO'd the crap out of that title. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's such a useful and important tool that we have now that. People haven't had before, whether they be authors or entrepreneurs trying to raise capital with you know, crowdfunding or what have you, right? I mean, these are tools and these are, uh, you know, ways of thinking that people need to leverage, right? Uh, if they want to be successful. Can you talk about um, your, you know, how, how entrepreneurs can leverage um, these kinds of tools and these concepts, um, you know, through, through the lens of your experience with SEO traction and content creation? And frankly, you know, maybe in the maybe maybe as an by way of example, even even talk about Elium. That's uh, sort of the seminal story, which you you've got great you know uh, uh, breadth on. Yeah. So uh, you know, the the fact is, my expertise on SEO probably begins and ends with that book title. Right. That is my only success story with SEO, <laughs> uh, and so I, I won't claim to be an expert, uh, but. But I'm happy to talk about Elio. Elio is a really exciting story. I know a lot of your audience is interested in raising money. Elio Motors uh, did um, a Regulation A plus offering early this year, I think in January and February, uh, after doing a testing the waters uh, campaign a year ago. In the testing the waters campaign, uh, I wrote about it in Forbes when they had about 27 million in uh, pledged uh, interest. Uh, ultimately, I think they got over 30 million dollars worth of expressions of interest in the testing the waters campaign, and that clearly was a helpful step in their process. And then they uh, went on and did the full offering document, did all the legal work. The great thing about this Regulation A Plus is that you can do that testing the waters step without doing any real legal work and putting very little out there in terms of information just to get a sense of whether there is a market for your idea. What a brilliant, brilliant legal concept. You can't take any money, but you can get a good idea. And Elio's experience is illustrative. 
because they their expressions of interest were almost 2x what they got in final investments. Now, I don't want to say that that's necessarily the rule because Elio went out and did their offering at the very worst time that the markets had maybe since the 2008 crash. You'll recall, perhaps, that at the beginning of the year, the market went fell about 10%, which is a pretty big swing over about, what was it? It was probably six weeks, right when Elio was doing their offering. So it was just absolutely, the, you know, they were um, running into gale force headwinds almost and doing this offering. So, you know, if they'd had a tailwind, if the market were rising and there was a lot of enthusiasm among investors at the time, they might well have beaten their um, the expressions of interest in their actual raise. But in any event, they were able to raise $16 million. Now, it's important to understand that uh, I don't know the full cap structure that Elio had prior to that, but it's my understanding that they had raised well over $100 million in debt and equity in prior rounds. So the offering uh, of $16 million was relatively small compared to what they had already raised and spent. And they will clearly need to raise more money. The company is now publicly traded, uh, but very thinly traded. As nearly as I can tell, um, you know, it's trading in the OTC markets. Um, it's tough to get a good sense of volume, but, but clearly it is not, a, uh, not trading a lot. But if you want to go buy shares of Elio Motors today, you can. The company has a market cap of about half a billion dollars. And, and I should say, for those of who are listening to this that, that don't know, Elio Motors is making a three-wheeled car. I think it's regulated in the United States basically as a motorcycle um, that will sell for about uh, $7,000 and that uh, will get 84 miles per gallon. It's a, it's a very small car. Uh, and so it's it's a, got a traditional engine in it, uh, but a small one. Um, but because it is narrow, like a motorcycle, it holds two people, but back front to back, uh, like in a motorcycle. You sit in car seats, but they will be in an enclosed configuration that's more like a motorcycle, so that there isn't as much wind resistance. By reducing wind resistance, you dramatically improve the gas mileage. Uh, so. Great car. I get very excited about this as a, a huge step forward for um, its potential to really help Americans reduce uh, their fuel consumption. Uh, you know, it's, it's – uh, Paul Elio, the founder, likes to point out that it's, uh, it's so cheap that it becomes an and car. So let's say you're uh, an affluent attorney living in the suburbs, Josh. And uh, let's just say, for for instance, that you have a suburban because you like to go out and do things with the family on the weekends, but that's your car and you drive it to work every day. Well, given the mileage difference between uh, the little Elio Motors car and your suburban, you could you could pay for the for the Elio car easily in the savings you would have on gas and maintenance on the big car by owning the little one. Uh, so you could keep the Suburban and drive the Elio to work each day. So it's a uh, an and car for affluent people. I love it, though, because it's an affordable car for people who traditionally 
couldn't afford a car, uh, not only to buy, you can always buy a cheap used car, but now it's a car that will be new, relatively low cost to maintain, and that fuel economy is just huge. So, yeah, I, I get excited about Elio Motors and uh, what they're doing, and I think it really highlights the potential for Regulation A-plus offerings to completely remake uh, the American landscape of, uh, you know, and giving ordinary investors an opportunity to invest in up-and-coming businesses again. Well, it's exciting to see the innovation in America and, and the things that are happening and, and the crowd supporting it. Um, well, we really appreciate your time. This has been great. Any Anything you'd want to part with um, besides people coming to your website and going to your Amazon.com page and checking out your Plural site videos and, and learn more of this kind of stuff? Any kind of parting advice you'd have for entrepreneurs out there? Well, I, I really do want to encourage everyone to do what you're doing, Jess. Um, you are doing some good. And I think it is really tempting for people to think that uh, it's someone else's job to do the good. And you have taken ownership and responsibility to do some of the good that needs to be done. And I think all of us need to take active responsibility for doing some of the good that needs to be done in this world. Um, if we all do a little, uh, a lot will happen. So um, I commend you for the great stuff you're doing, Jess. <laughs> well, we love how much of a spotlight you're shining on uh, the people who are trying to make things better. And thanks again for making time for us today. Thank you. Thank you both. That was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.